So welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our second session uh, today. Uh, it's important for us to be in fellowship, to be uh, filled with God the Holy Spirit as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is our opportunity for spiritual preparation. Uh, spiritual preparation certainly for us includes confession of sins. But it's also an opportunity for us to settle our minds and to focus on spiritual things because our uh, our lives uh, in Satan's world are filled with distractions. And even when we are pursuing things that uh, are honoring to God, they can sometimes um, distract us from our our time to worship. But that's what we're here for this morning. This is also our opportunity, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that each one of us should give, just as we determine in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, uh, not under compulsion or uh, in any way resentment of any kind, because the Lord loves a gracious, a willing, a, the Bible often says, a cheerful giver. So let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we're thankful for your blessings upon us. We know that uh, you could very easily support all of your ministries in many different ways, but you've chosen to provide for us this benefit, this opportunity to give, Father. And you bless us so that we can give. Uh, it's different for each one of us. But we're thankful, Father, for your gracious uh, prosperity to us. We're thankful, Father, that as we give, we also, Father, uh, when in fellowship as we do this, we are, uh, in fact, pleasing you and in pleasing you father there is a sense of uh, of obedience on our part uh, so this is not something that we do uh, reluctantly or under compulsion but instead father it's something that we do willingly and this is not always something that's easy but as we grow spiritually and as we understand your plan and your purpose for us this becomes something that is more uh, uh, more solidly based in our priesthood. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon our offering and also upon our service to follow. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to return uh, today to First Thessalonians, but I also wanted to spend some time with the Holocaust, uh, anti-Semitism in Israel, and that was where I uh, had spent uh, a little more than a week, uh, uh, a week or so ago. Uh, the, uh, this is the, uh, the seminar. The topic, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism in Israel, uh, was a Christian leadership seminar. And I've had several questions and I enjoy questions. I think they're important. Uh, for me to, to hear those questions. Uh, one of the, the questions, and it's a question that I, I would have and uh, most uh, believers would have, is how is this a Christian leadership seminar if it's being uh, led by um, secular Jews or Orthodox Jews or even conservative uh, Jews? Because there's, by the way, uh, I've completely lost track of all the various different flavors of uh, uh, how politically and religiously uh, Jews fall today. It's it's uh, remarkable, but um, the the question is legitimate. And the Christian Leadership Seminar has probably been in existence for I'm going to guess at least seven years, maybe eight. I don't know if it's been ten or not. But for the uh, first, uh, probably first seven years, it was, in fact, led by uh, a believer, by a Christian. Uh, she was from, uh, I believe, Norway. And uh, just this last year, 
uh, she decided that she wanted to uh, begin her own ministry and departed. And when she departed, uh, that position was uh, assumed or was filled by Yad Vashem, by the international uh, department, uh, educational department, with uh, a secular Jew. And uh, so the question then becomes, how did it change? As near as I know, and according to the um, those who were teaching the class, uh, organizing it, it really did not change. Well, it had to change, and it did change. Uh, but I think the purpose was the same, and that purpose was, was achieved. Uh, the purpose simply is to ensure that uh, Christian leaders are aware of uh, the facts, the, uh, the accurate history that uh, led up to the Holocaust and uh, uh, what occurred during the Holocaust and, of course, the aftermath today. And uh, I think that all of us know that uh, history is, uh, it's difficult to get accurate history. Every author of history, uh, with the exception, of course, God, and his inspiring of his inspiration of the new and the the old and the new testament is going to be biased so every uh historical account we ever read we have to read with uh caution realizing that whoever is writing it has a perspective whether it's their cultural whether it's their political whether it's their religious whether it was their educational, whatever it is, there's going to be a slight tinge of that, even for those who are truly trying to be as accurate as possible. And then, of course, you're going to have others that truly veer off course intentionally. And uh, revisionism history today is uh, the best example we have there uh, with Let's revise history so that we just completely change the accuracy of what truly happened. Uh, and w- we see this a little bit in church history because uh, having studied church history and having taught church history, I know that there are some gaps and there are some uh, periods of church history that are uh, are colored, they're tinge, tinged by uh, early church figures uh, and getting to the bottom sometimes of what actually happened uh, in uh, early church history and even follow on, but really early church history can be very difficult because we don't have uh, the same resources that we have today. Uh, but that's also can be true with early Jewish history, his, uh, with Jewish history that is um, that flows out of the first, second, third hist- uh, centuries. A.D. And we just have to be aware of that. And I think it's important for us to understand that Uh, for our uh, scripture reading. Let's turn to Isaiah. You'll notice here. That my uh, slide uh, speaks of. Yad Vashem. And Yad Vashem is a Hebrew phrase. And the Hebrew phrase is taken from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. It's always, it's hard for me to remember this, uh, chapter because I always transpose it in my mind as 65. And I can read in Isaiah 65 for a long time and never find what I'm trying to say. Uh, 
to read. So uh, Yad Vashem, the word Yad is the Hebrew word literally hand. But it is a word that has um, a broad definition. Or I shouldn't say a broad definition, but a broad usage. Let's put it that way. Uh, Vashem is the word for name. Um, and you might say, well, how in the world does the word name and hand uh, merge here for this Holocaust museum? Um, well, let's let's read. Let's begin in uh, Isaiah 56, and I'm going to uh, begin in verse uh, verse one. And again, uh, we were reading in Psalms uh, to begin our first service, and we saw that the psalmist was praying to the Father, was petitioning the Father regarding the Gentiles. Well, as we begin here in Isaiah 56, we're going to see, again, we're addressing Gentiles, or at least Gentiles are part of the topic. It says, thus says the Lord. And the psalmist was a, was uh, petitioning uh, the Lord. Here we have the Lord simply speaking. And we start with this general exhortation. And it says, keep justice and do righteousness. For my deliverance is about to come. It's about to uh, be seen. It's near, we would say. And my righteousness, here we have this understanding, uh, is to be revealed. So, blessed is our second word here, uh, is the man who does this. Does what? Who keeps justice and does righteousness, we could say. So, blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who lays hold on it. Um, one of the easiest ways to understand Hebrew poetry is to see the parallel between two different lines. And again, this isn't for all Hebrew poetry. But here, as we read this, blessed is the man who does this, and the son, and the word blessed here is understood, but the, the son of man who lays hold of this, the son of man is not here describing any son in particular, but the son of man is another way of saying man, individual, who this is. And so, uh, blessed is the man who does this, who keeps justice and does righteousness, um, because God's righteousness is about to be revealed. And the son of man who lays hold of this, who accomplishes it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. And for us today, this is being obedient. Uh, part of the Sabbath was, or, or keeping the Sabbath was part of the law, obeying what God had given Israel. And so we would say, uh, keeping from defiling the Sabbath, what we would say is keeping us, keeping from uh, uh, defiling, if we wanted to use that word, uh, our times of worship. Uh, we are commanded to worship God. We are to dedicate ourselves to uh, reverence and worship for God. And we need to uh, keep it holy, we could say. Not the Sabbath, but our worship time for him. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Uh, so the parallel parallelism is there as well. Verse 3. Now we're going to see the blessing to those who obey the Lord here in verse 3. Do not let the Son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying the Lord has utterly separated me from his people so here is the foreigner this is the Gentile who has joined the nation who is a worshiper of the God of Israel Uh, a proselyte might be a word that we could use here but he has joined himself to the Lord believes in God. We would call him in the Old Testament a saint, or we can use the word believer. Uh, but it says, uh, uh, do not say this. The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Uh, 
nor let the eunuch, the official, say, here I am, a dry tree. In other words, what they're saying is, don't say that I have been abandoned by God. I can't be part of this community of Israel. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the eunuch, to the official who keeps my Sabbath and chooses what pleases me, who is obedient and holds fast my covenant. In other words, the phrase here, uh, this is an encouragement to us to be obedient to uh, the doctrines that we know from uh, the New Testament and the principles we learn from the word of God. Verse 5, even to them, so this is to the Gentiles, even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name, Yad the Shem, a name, a place here, uh, and a name. We would say a memorial and a name is probably a better translation. Better than that of the sons and the daughters, I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. They shall never be forgiven. And so the, uh, the, the background, the, uh, biblical foundation for the memorial, the Holocaust Memorial, uh, museum in Israel takes its name from this verse, Yad Vashem, a memorial and a name. That's what this is designed to do. And, uh, it's, it's very interesting uh, for us as we read this. We realize that this was originally uh, directed towards Gentiles. This is the Lord speaking to those who would join Israel, who would believe in the God of Israel. And he says, I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to disown you. Um, and I don't have any problem with Israel uh taking the phrase because the meaning, the application can apply here. Uh, that God is not going to uh, leave us uh, without uh, a memory. And it says here that he is going to, in fact, uh, uh, provide uh, a, a specific remembrance and reward, we could even say, uh, a name. He is not going to forget us. And I really love that because this is uh, this was a a promise to the Gentiles. Now we're going to study here in a little bit uh, more about the uh, about Israel, the Hebrews, uh, and the Jews. But this same promise is given to us as believers, those of us who have committed ourselves to the Lord and have been obedient to Him. All right, uh, we started uh, last time with me uh, briefly speaking about this course. And let me go to the next day here, uh, Wednesday. On Wednesday, I'll find my... I've got the titles on my... Uh, screen. But on Wednesday, <clears throat> which was Holocaust Marem- uh, Remembrance Day Eve, and uh, many of these words uh, that I would hear, that we would use, I would remember them or know them from my Hebrew courses. Uh, uh, but Sometimes it's, it was always difficult to identify them in the script that they're using. But uh, here we have uh, Yom HaShoah. We're going to see that uh, is the next day. But the, this was the eve of that day. And Erev is the word, the Hebrew word for uh, evening. Um, uh, what One of the things that those who go to 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 Israel always like to begin the day by saying Boker Tov. Now to us that sounds rather strange. Uh, tov is the word for good. Boker is the word for morning. So we would say Boker Tov. Uh, and Boker Erev 
is the word for uh, good evening. And so this is the Erev, uh, Erev Yom HaShoah. And the Ha is the word for the. Yom is the word for day. And Shoah is the word, a rather common word for disaster, tragedy, uh, something of that nature. Um, anyhow, this was the day prior to that. Uh, it's important for us because uh, a, uh, a, a Jewish day begins in the evening. And so we would be uh, celebrating that, the celebration would begin that evening after 6 o'clock. Um, and so the days, trying to keep the time, uh, the times uh, straight. Of course, we didn't have to do that. We were told where to be and when to be there, so it was not a big problem. But if you're trying to kind of work with both times, it was a little difficult. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, when you go to eat, uh, to Israel, periodically you will see people wearing two watches. They'll wear one watch, one here and one here. One of the, the participants we had, really a, a, a wonderful woman, uh, had both of them on the same wrist. And so she would be looking at her wrist like this. And uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, Jews in the uh, medieval Christian world. I have to tell you that this should probably probably be a... Uh, a topic all of its own. Um, and I, I, be, I can, you know, I've begun this already speaking about church history. Uh, one of the things that, that's difficult very often for us as uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to understand exactly what happened between the authors of the New Testament and what we would probably call the uh, uh, the early church fathers uh, as they developed into the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries A.D. Um, because uh, when the church concludes at the end of the 1st century with the epistles, uh, being added and collected to go into what we call the canon of scripture, we have authors, um, John, the apostle John, who we know has uh, a wonderful, uh, devoted relationship to the Jews, whether they are believers or whether they are not. And we know that they're, they're students that... Uh, uh, extended out of the first century into the second century and probably from the second century to the third century. But somewhere in here, and unfortunately, while we often give uh, Emperor Constantine credit for focusing the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire towards Christianity, he was also influenced by... Uh, Christians who had come to the conclusion that their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had been murdered by the Jews, and the Jews were to blame for this. Now, what happens is a bit obscured because, as I was telling you about authors, authors have a tendency to write what they want history to say. And there are precious few authors writing during that period of time, or at least recorded, uh, that we have recorded, simply because we don't have uh, a means of having uh, the best uh, records and copies during that period of time. Uh, a lot of it was uh, word of mouth, oral, but there is some that is still written and there's still uh, through archaeology and other ways that we do have uh, um, evidence of what was happening. But uh, Augustine or Augustine is one of the very early church uh, leaders who uh, was, no other way to say it, anti-Semitic. Um, they... Uh, there was a early form of replacement theology that said 
there is not going to be a future for the Jews. And as all of this theology developed, we end up with a, uh, a hostility towards the Jews. Now, as I, um, in, a, in some one or two conversations with a couple of my instructors uh, at the uh, leadership seminar, the Christian leadership seminar, uh, was that it was not a one-way street. That Judaism was not exactly uh, uh, open and accepting to uh, Christianity. And we have no further to go than the Apostle Paul. Uh, and the hostility that he had towards the Jews in the first century. And that continued uh, throughout early Judaism. It's just that there came a time when uh, Judaism was by far in the minority and church history took off. Uh, the the apostles, the extent, the reach uh, the coverage of Christianity during that first century and second century and third century was extraordinary. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that it had reached the entire world, the gospel. But unfortunately, we had uh, some erroneous views that began to grow. And you've heard me say that uh, that sense of the Jews having been set aside, not only set aside, but rejected and no longer being part of history. This is where we get all millennialism and that the church assumes the role uh, or the, the becomes the beneficiary for the promises and the covenants. And therefore, we develop replacement theology. There are those today who still teach uh, replacement theology, they like to call it something different. Uh, but uh, this all began in the third and fourth centuries. And Constantine uh, heard, listened, was taught this information. And uh, the Jews were brutalized during those centuries. And this sense, this teaching uh, grew into the theology of the Germans. The Lutherans uh, grew out of the teaching of Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, is um, a, a remarkable individual in church history. Uh, and there is uh, much to celebrate in what he did and what he taught. But sadly, towards the end of his life, when he was unable to persuade the Jews to convert, he became very hostile to them. And that attitude um, continued to grow and uh, was fostered in the Lutheran German uh, theology. So that when we arrive in uh, the early uh, 20th century, um, before World War One, subsequent to World War One, uh, in the 30s, we have uh, an attitude towards Jews that is that is growing to be on hostility, particularly in certain political veins, and one of them grew into Nazism. Uh, sad to say, but anyhow, uh, Jews in the uh, medieval Christian world is an area that really uh, needs to be explored. Uh, and it's very difficult to do because it's hard to find uh, solid, accurate history during that period of time. But one of the things that we uh, we do know is that um, we pick up the trace, really, after 70 A.D. We know that um, when uh, the Jews rebelled against the Roman rule and the Romans uh, come to Israel. And, I, and by the way, we almost have to uh, temper those comments that not all Israel did, but there were certain uh, veins of and uh, parts 
of Judaism that resisted Roman rule. And there became, of course, uh, an immovable object uh, banging up against uh, this irresistible force. And the Romans, unfortunately, are the irresistible force, and they're going to destroy uh, uh, Jerusalem, the temple, and many, uh, many Jews lose their lives at that time. Uh, not long after that, in 135, we have the Bar Hokbar uh, rebellion as well. And that's probably uh, an even worse bloody event when Hadrian comes down and kills probably some in the vicinity of a million Jews, destroying Jerusalem again. And it's uh, during that period of time that the Jews are truly uh, in discipline, under discipline, uh, for the rejection of the Messiah. And they will remain in uh, the diaspora during in dispersion for uh, until to, until now, and it's during this period that uh, we we see that different aspects of this discipline taking taking shape in different parts of the world. The Jews are dispersed. Uh, we have a fairly significant uh, group that are dispersed into. Uh, Western Europe, into Spain, uh, and others in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, Russia, we have them in uh, Poland, uh, a heavy concentration in Russia, Poland, uh, and in Germany. And as this animosity grows, um, we have a whole culture growing uh, in that area, um, we have a language. Yiddish is um, it's Hebrew blended with German uh, and and other dialects in that area. But the the culture uh, grows and develops as well. Uh, that's one of the reasons Hebrew really a biblical Hebrew a Hebrew. Well, biblical Hebrew doesn't, but the Hebrew language really dies out and it has to be resurrected after the nation is uh, reestablished in 1948. Something that uh, was said couldn't happen, but it did. Uh, just one more uh, startup, you could say, that has occurred in Israel. Israel truly is a startup nation. Um, it's, it's a remarkable nation. But anyhow, we, I, this was an incredible, uh, I really enjoyed listening to this history, uh, and there's more that needs to be done there, and I've taken too much time. Uh, literary responses to the Holocaust, um, a lot of, uh, literary responses, whether it's in art, whether it's in literature, but various types of literature was written. And, uh, there's a lot of literature that was produced during the Holocaust by those who were going through the Holocaust because it was preserved. One of the remarkable things about the Jews going through the Holocaust is that they didn't bend to it as far as their culture was concerned. Uh, they still would gather in their synagogues. Uh, they still would, uh, uh, uh sing their songs. They would have, um, uh, uh, their their dances, they would have the orchestra. Uh, they they continued to uh, uh, flame the the embers and in some cases the fires of their Jewish culture, so that it didn't die during the Holocaust. And this is something that's absolutely extraordinary as you study the Holocaust in the ghettos, whether it was uh, in Poland or in other areas. Uh, the word ghetto is a, an Italian name, comes out of uh, uh, Italy. Um, but ghettos sprung up throughout uh, throughout Europe. But in each one of those ghettos, the Jewish culture was preserved. They continued to preserve it. And there was history written about it. And there was art. Um, there was uh, sewing and knitting and I mean everything that you can possibly uh, imagine, and much uh, much evidence of that has ended up in uh, the museums. So um, 
We had then a guided tour of the city of David. We that, This was in the afternoon. Went over to Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's Tunnel and also Warren Shaft. I don't really have time to, to talk about Hezekiah's Tunnel. We went through that when we were there. Uh, but there is, which is a, a tunnel that ferries water from outside the city to inside the city uh, so that there would be, if there was a siege, there would still be water. Warren's Shaft is the shaft above it that... Uh, moves along the same area, but it's a dry tunnel. Tunnel. We went through Warren Shaft this time. I'd never been uh, through Shennel, uh, Warren's Shaft previously, so I was glad we did that. Also kept my feet dry. So, uh, Linda, did you go? You went through Hezekiah's uh, tunnel too. Yeah. Uh, Thursday, May the second. Uh, this was Holocaust Museum. Uh, I was going to say. Okay. Uh, by the way, Monday evening. Uh, the, Ju- the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra performed, uh, f- not for us, but we were there for it. And I'm sure it was an absolutely wonderful uh, performance. All I can tell you is that I napped during that. Uh, the flight over uh, just finally got to me. There were some who were staying awake, but I think those are the ones that were flying a lot distance and or had a little bit different uh, approach. But... Uh, I'm sure it was wonderful. Anyhow, on uh, that was on that was on Tuesday night. Tuesday night. On Wednesday night, we uh, uh, had the uh, uh, the Yom Hashoah ceremony. Now, I need to make one comment here um, for Hashoah. the disaster or the catastrophe or the Holocaust. Um, I've asked this question several several times by those, some who consider themselves to be uh, experts on the subject and others who aren't. But the phrase Holocaust is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Holocaust. You can find it in the Old Testament. Hashoah is another uh, Hebrew word, more of a modern Hebrew word, uh, ha meaning the and shoah meaning disaster. Uh, I'm told that they can be used interchangeably. Uh, in the readings that I've done, it seems to me that uh, ha shoah, and as soon as I say this, there's going to who may hear this that will disagree with me. I think it's more of a secular term uh, because Holocaust means a whole burnt offering. And I think when we use the word Hashoah, and I'm not saying use one over the other one, choose one, champion one. I think it's just more of a word that has been accepted and is used today. You're going to see the word Holocaust used just as often as you're more often than you're going to see Hashoah. But uh, when you see the word, you just need to know that the reference is to the same as far as. Uh, those who are describing the Holocaust, uh, they'll describe it as the Holocaust or they'll describe it as Hashoah. And it uh, is a reference to both. Uh, my perceptions uh, set aside. Uh, we talked about modern anti-Semitism, Nazism and Hashoah, the Shoah. Um, this was uh, the description of how we arrive at uh, truly anti-Semitism, not simply a resentment, not just an opposition, but a, host, a, a, a true violent hostility as it develops in uh, Nazism. Uh, the decision to kill the Jews. History is extraordinary here. Uh, the final solution and its implementation. Uh, when it comes time to uh, find in history, find in the writings, it's, you know, the Germans are, by the way, when I speak of the Germans, I have German blood. Uh, of course, I also have Scottish blood, so, you know, how those two merge, I'm not sure. But anyhow, uh, the Germans uh, during World War II and prior to World War II were meticulous, meticulous in note-taking uh, and in records. Uh, and we have uh, records from meetings. We have records from concentration camps. We have uh, records from death camps. I mean, we have uh, volumes and volumes and volumes of uh, evidence of what was happening. But 
what's remarkable when it comes to the decision of to uh, the decision to kill the Jews. Uh, it is very difficult to find any order that was ever given by the uh, senior hierarchy of, of the Nazis. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, even though uh, it's reasonably well established that this was the desire of Hitler, there is uh, a lot of, of talk about Jews and hatred for Jews. But when it came time to uh, who made the decision to kill the Jews? We just don't have that evidence. It's not there. Uh, the final solution, uh, where did it first arise? We know that it arose after the war began uh, and its implementation. Uh, one of the parts, one of the uh, evils today of those who say, uh, well, we might believe that there were some Jews killed during World War II. You know, they will stipulate to that fact they'll they would say it was nowhere near uh the to-do that uh the jews are making it of it today six million oh come on that uh, maybe a couple hundred thousand but you know uh, that couldn't have happened and one of the and one of the way one of their arguments is they'll say show us show us evidence show us evidence go to the uh death camps uh where are the gas chambers well, they've been destroyed. They're not there. Uh, where are all of the bodies? Well, it's hard to find bodies out of ashes. And so those who are Holocaust deniers who would say, show us the bodies, uh, show us the, the, the gas chambers, show us the death chambers. Now, there are uh, foundations. There are, uh, uh, you know, uh, what we believe to be the evidence there. But uh, there is a lot of room for, quote unquote, denying that it really didn't happen, that, yes, we'll admit that the Nazis were a brutal uh, group, but it was not uh, focused. Their uh, hatred and their efforts were not focused against the Jews. But how many gypsies died? How many uh, indolent? How many they already had some of these set up? yes. But it, de it develops and turns into a wholesale effort to destroy Jews. And uh, there is uh, evidence of this happening. Uh, and a lot of the evidence, and I've, I mentioned it to you, uh, uh, of s simply the absence of people. Uh, there were uh, in the area... Uh, uh, of Eastern Europe, um, the uh, the numbers, families uh, in Poland alone, there was something like three million five hundred thousand Jews, and when the war was over, there was five hundred thousand. And where are they? Where are they? They're dead. They're dead. They were murdered. They were slaughtered. And that's out of Poland alone. So, uh, cultural and spiritual resistance in the ghettos. If, if you would like to read, um, I, by the way, I, I have had I've, one of the books that I uh, gave to some of the people called Until We Meet Again is a story of two uh, families that uh, grew out of, uh, that grew up in Poland. They were born in Poland and they grew out of Poland. Uh, and it's an extraordinary story about how they anticipated the Germans coming to their, uh, their town, their little town in Poland. Uh, when I'm gone sometime, I'll have Hal give you a, uh, a book report on this, and I know he could talk for hours about it. But the fact remains is that these were two families uh, linked together by 17-year-old teenagers, a boy and a girl, who later survived. They were few of their uh, few that survived in their family, married, came to the United States, and their children wrote this book. But to listen to them uh, recount 
their uh, their experiences in uh, mo- being moved from camp to camp, from concentration camp to death camp, and uh, surviving. It's unbelievable. Uh, My Destiny, Survivor of the Holocaust, uh, is another book. This one is, by the, the name here, is uh, Michael Kornbilt, K-O-R-E-N-B-L-I-T. Uh, if you'd like to look at the book, please come up afterwards. Uh, this one is uh, Georgia Gabor, Georgia Gabor. She was a a Jew that grew up in Hungary and uh, her family, matter of fact, her father was very prosperous, but she'll end up being uh, caught in the the politics and uh, the German effort in Hungary to wipe out the uh, the Jews in Hungary, uh, and her, her story and her survival, and she ends up in America as well. Uh, you know, the United States was one of those nations that simply welcomed the Jews. The Jews, they came to America for a new beginning. Uh, here's uh, another book. This is, many of you will recognize the name Arnold Fruchtenbaum. This is when your face was your destiny. In other words, all you had to do was look like a Jew uh, in Poland. He is, his family uh, grew, uh, were started in Poland. And it's, uh, again, it's a his- horrific story. Uh, I'm trying to remember the size of his family, but uh, he was one of the younger uh, brothers in a family of probably somewhere in the vicinity of 12 to 15 children. And uh, I think he and uh, maybe uh, two or three others survived this, uh, the Holocaust. Um, this one is told by David S. Turner. Uh, reading those, those stories, um, just the personal stories are uh, exceptional. But picking up the history, what's happening at that period of time? What's going on? How uh, is um, that nation, Hungary, Poland, Austria, Germany, Russia, uh, other nations? There's another book called The Last Escape, uh, written by Ruth Kluger, uh, which is an extraordinary. I read that about 10 years ago. I ought to read it again. But that's the start of uh, the Mossad um, it starts trying to rescue Jews out of Europe uh, in the, the late 30s uh, and the, the challenges, the difficulties and the obstacles that they have. Um, but uh, you know, the, uh, the remarkable stories here, uh, today there's, a, um, there's another um, question about who who were the perpetrators? Who were the bystanders? And who were the uh, the victims? How do you describe the bystanders? Uh, one of the questions is, is often asked of the Polish government uh, because there's, matter of fact, it was in the news this past year in uh, 2018, as uh, Israel is trying to develop normal relationships with nations in Europe. One of them happens to be Poland. And there's a, a great deal of criticism uh, towards uh, uh, Netanyahu, President Netanyahu, or Prime Minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu, about trying to normalize relations. And how can you have normal relations with a government that was part of the Holocaust? And there is uh, a a counter argument whether, and I'm not one side or the other, this is between those two nations. Uh, But uh, when uh, the Germans invaded Poland, the, the government departed and it was in exile. And there was a Polish government in exile trying to direct what was happening, the resistance in Poland. But the Germans naturally instituted, put in place a uh, a Polish government. And it was a government either by force, 
or by whatever means, uh, by persuasion, uh, that supported what the what the Germans were doing. So the question is, how do we see that? Uh, but uh, cultural and spiritual resistance in the ghettos, extraordinary story, and I've uh, talked a little, uh, described a little bit of that. Uh, on Friday, the Holocaust, genocide, and rising anti-Semitism. Um, interesting, the rising anti-Semitism in Europe and also in the United States. And one of the ways we see that today in the boycott, uh, divestment, and sanctions movement. Uh, we, we see it on campus. We see it in churches. Um, we see it in organizations. And it is nothing more than anti-Semitism. We went, by the way, we took a, a tour of that afternoon, uh, got over to see uh, the garden tomb, Gordon's tomb, which is a second century tomb that has all of the appearances of how uh, the Lord's uh, tomb might have appeared. Uh, but I do not believe that it uh, certainly is not the same uh, tomb. Uh, we had we went to Sabbat evening services that night. Uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, didn't understand a thing that was being said, uh, but uh, stood, sat, stood, sat, and, and watched. And uh, uh, some of you would really enjoy the, that kind of a service because uh, um, we stand, you walk around, you talk to people, you come back to your seat, you sit down, uh, and I mean each uh, synagogue is a little different, but. Uh, uh, like I said, I enjoyed watching it. Uh, then we had Sabbat. We went on a tour to Galilee, uh, Jericho. We drove by Galilee. We drove along the uh, Jordan River. Uh, we went to Capernaum. Uh, many of us in here have been to Capernaum. Uh, we also went to uh, Migdal, and there should be another A on the end of that, uh, Migdal. Uh, uh, Mag- which is today, it's well, today it's Migdal. Uh, back then, it was Magdala. And you'll recognize that from the name of Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And what they have discovered there, uh, they've, they have, within the last five years, they've uncovered a early first century synagogue. Now, in Capernaum, there's a synagogue, and we visited that synagogue, you'll remember, in Capernaum. But that's believed to be about a 4th century synagogue built on other synagogues. This one is believed, from archaeology, to, believe, to be a early 1st century synagogue. Now, we're not going to get all excited and run around and scream and shout, but we know that the Lord went to uh, Magdala. We know that he walked through there, and they believe they have archaeologists, and not just Christian archaeologists, but secular geologists believe that they have uncovered the several streets, some that enter the synagogue there. Uh, so it's highly likely that some of those streets and that synagogue was a place where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, visited. It was fun to, to see that. Uh, on Sunday... Uh, we talked about the archives, remembering the past, shaping the future. And um, th- this was the 50th year of Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem, and they come up with a pin, and I'm wearing it. It was given to me as a, a gift. Uh, it's the memorial pin, remembering the past, shaping the future. And this pin, it says Yad Vashem is the world's, uh, world's premier site for commemoration of the tragic events of Hashoah, the Shoah. Located on the Mount of Remembrance in Jerusalem, it is entrusted with preserving the memory of the Holocaust and passing on its legacy. To mark Yad Vashem's Jubilee year, a unique emblem has been designed to symbolize Yad Vashem's message. Remember the past, shaping the future. The barbed wire stem recalls the pain and the trauma of the Holocaust, while the leaves stemming from the wire symbolizes the rebirth and the hope that emerged in the wake of the unparalleled tragedy. Wearing this pin expresses your commitment to remembering the past in order to ensure a better future 
for our children. So I wanted to show you that. Um, it's um, one of the things that strikes me as I study the Holocaust and uh, as I observe the uh, uh, the Jewish culture that developed or continued and came out of uh, World War II, uh, you would expect people uh, to be uh, uh, have a deep-seated hatred. Uh, there would be a uh, a reaction to this, uh, to the Holocaust. But most of the Jews, Holocaust survivors, made a determination that they're not going to allow the murderers to win. We are simply going to continue our lives. We're going to marry. We're going to have children. We are going to move forward. We may not forget, but we're moving on, and we're going to reestablish our lives as they would have been had the Holocaust not happened. Uh, And you see that all the time as you talk to some of these Holocaust uh, survivors. Where am I here? Was this? Yeah. Confronting the, the phenomenon of Holocaust denial, I've addressed that a little bit, uh, and it is incredible. Uh, the righteous among the nations, saving Jews during the Holocaust. We spent uh, a bit of time uh, talking about the righteous among the Gentiles. Uh, when we were at uh, the pre-trib conference, we studied a French town uh, in, uh, uh, in free France that defended the Jews. So it was a decision. The town decided they were not going to, not, number one, they weren't going to persecute the Jews. Number two, they weren't going to turn any Jews over to anybody. They didn't care who they were. And uh, the French came to get them and they couldn't find them uh, because they were being hid and protected. The Germans came and they couldn't find them. They, that town, uh, Le Chambon, I, I'm trying to remember what the name of that town was. Uh, it's probably right here in my notes, uh, it, but it's French. Who knows what it, how it's pronounced? Um, but the uh, uh, the fact is that there were uh, towns uh, that said no, no. They are French. Maybe Jews. Uh, they may be North African. They may be wherever they're from. No, they're French and they belong to us. Uh, the problem facing Israel today, the Christian world in Israel, uh, really wonderful conversations with them, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Semitism and global jihad. Well, as always, uh, it, I was unable to get uh, to the place where I would like to be. Uh, maybe we'll pick it up just a little bit to end uh, this conversation next week. But the end of the story is not the Holocaust. The end of the story is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we stop the Holocaust? We stop it through a spiritual transformation. And uh, we all have the capability within our sin nature to hate and to do horrible, uh, devastating, holocaustic type deeds. And it's only through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through the truth of the word of God. And it's only through our spiritual maturity to be able to face uh, Satan's world. Because Satan's world, the uh, the cosmic system, is uh, persuasive. And uh, if you're not persuasive, sometimes it'll just roll right over you. And... That's what we see happening in various locations. Now, there is no doubt that God uses uh, uh, tools, instruments uh, as his uh, means for discipline. But uh, those tools, those people who are used, are being used because they've made certain decisions in their lives. And when we make decisions for God, for Christ, uh, we have uh, a resistance to this, and one of those resistances is through God the Holy Spirit. 
given to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about that next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your extraordinary love for us. And we're thankful again that it is you that controls human history. Jesus Christ controls history. And Father, we need to be on the right side of history. And the right side of the history is described for us in the mind of Christ and the word of God. We're thankful, Father, that you sent your son to be our savior. We're thankful that he made the decision to go to the cross. And we're thankful, Father, that even though many uh, uh, conspired to kill him, they didn't kill him. He gave up his life. The means uh, of his uh, punishment on the cross was crucifixion. But he is the one that gave up his own life. And that's why we know he is the son of God. He is your son. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah and our Savior. Father, we're thankful for the truth of the word of God. And we're thankful that it's simply by believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can receive imputed righteousness and have a relationship with you and eternal life. And we're thankful for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.